0: Coming to cities' churches like a homecoming. It's like a homecoming. If I get invited to Bethlehem to speak, it's a homecoming. This is like a homecoming. And the reason it's like a homecoming is because your preaching pastors, Jonathan, David, Joe, and I share a theological home. And you can read it at your website if you go to City Church and find the affirmation of faith there. It's our home. So to see the hand of God on you for these five years, To see him bring you to this place by his mercy, this milestone both of five years and of uh, stewarding what God owns, is a very deep pleasure for me because it means there's another foothold, another base of operations from which the vision of God that I live for, you live for, these pastors live for, there's another place, there's another base, there's another people who believe that you ought to spend your entire life living that the majesty of Jesus be magnified in these cities. It's an amazing thing to watch God do this. Nothing is more important than that God in Christ be seen and savored and shown for who he really is to all the peoples of the world, including you and those to whom you are sent as salt of the earth. Nothing. Is more important than seeing and savoring and showing the majesty of Jesus in this world. You might need to be reminded, I don't know, you might need to be reminded that your mission presented in the Ten Commandments in these cities is so utterly countercultural and so deeply counterintuitive for the other folks of the Twin Cities, so offensive to people whose happiness has never reckoned with the supreme worth of God, so Shocking in the way God speaks to you out of the Ten Commandments that it will take a miracle in your life and their life for anybody in these cities to understand or grasp or see or savor or show what you're about. And yet, that mission, as countercultural and counterintuitive and offensive and shocking as it is, is more wonderful, more beautiful, more valuable, more durable, more satisfying than anything these cities has ever achieved or dreamed. Now, there's a bridge between my gladness over your church and its mission in these cities there's a bridge between my gladness over that and Exodus 20, verse 7, which is my assignment for today. And that bridge is found in paragraph 3 of the Affirmation of Faith that your elders all subscribe to, as do I with great joy. I'm going to read you those two paragraphs and pray and cross the bridge into the Word of God. We believe that God from all eternity, in order to display the full extent of His glory for the eternal and everlasting enjoyment, ever-increasing enjoyment of all who love Him, did by the most wise and holy counsel of His will freely and unchangeably ordain and foreknow whatever comes to pass. We believe that God upholds and governs all things, from galaxies to subatomic particles, from forces of nature to the movements of nations, from the public plans of politicians to the secret acts of solitary persons, all in accord with his eternal, all-wise purposes to glorify himself. Yet, in such a way that he never sins, nor ever condemns a person unjustly, but that His ordaining and governing all things is compatible with the moral accountability of all persons created in His image. So two expressions in those two paragraphs, a single theme which brings the first three commandments of the Ten Commandments into focus. First, God ordained all that comes to pass to display the full extent of his glory. Second, God governs all things in order that he might display his eternal all-wise purposes to glorify himself. So God ordained all things to display God. God governs all things to glorify God, and as the affirmation says, this radical God-centeredness of God is for our eternal and ever-increasing joy. And with that we've landed. In the first three commandments, Exodus 20, verse 3 You shall have no other gods before me, no gods before my presence, no gods before me in your priorities, me alone, me supreme. This is God talking. God demanding that God be exalted above everyone, everything, thoughts, emotions, actions in your life, in all of them, God supreme. That's what God says. A sweeping God-centeredness of God in the first commandment. Here's the second one, verses 4 to 6. You shall not make... but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Here's the most foundational statement in that. Foundational statement. I am jealous of your everything. I'm jealous of your brain and its thoughts. I'm jealous of your heart and its emotions. I'm jealous of your hands and your actions. I'm jealous of your mouth and everything that comes out of it. I am a jealous God. That's the most foundational thing he says in the second commandment. So don't bow to images, don't serve images, don't love images, don't obey images, don't hate me. I'm jealous of your bowing, I'm jealous of your serving, I'm jealous of your loving, I'm jealous I brought you out of the land of Egypt to myself. I made you. You're mine. I'm your maker, your God, your liberator, your husband, your father, your wisdom, your king, your treasure. I'm your life. I'm jealous of you. You belong to me. Don't commit suicide. You belong to me. Let my jealousy hold you to me. Oprah Winfrey heard a sermon when she was 27 that drove her away from biblical Christianity because the sermon was about the jealousy of God. Let me quote you what I wrote down from her testimony on YouTube. You can go there and find it. Then the preacher said, the Lord thy God is a jealous God. This is Oprah talking. I was caught up in the rapture of that moment until he said jealous. And something struck me. I was 27 or 28. And I was thinking, God is all, God is omnipresent, God is also jealous, a jealous, God is jealous of me, and something about that didn't feel right in my spirit, because I believe God is love, and that God is in all things. Close quote. She was gone. That's what I meant when I said the mission of this church, the vision of God that you exist to spread in the Twin Cities, is countercultural, counterintuitive, offensive, and shocking. and will require miracles of the Holy Spirit for Oprah to return. Please, God, you pray like that when you see people who are famous away? Do you pray like that or anybody else to return? And if the notion rises in your heart well jealousy in God um, is an Old Testament idea. You did not so learn Christ in this church. Paul said to the Corinthians, "Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He?" First Corinthians 10:22. He said, I am jealous for you with God's jealousy, 2 Corinthians eleven two. 2. Jesus said that the greatest commandment of God now in this room is, God says, love me with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. I'm jealous of all of it now, New Testament, 21st century. And Jesus said this, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. God the Father and God the Son today in this room right now, City's Church, are aflame with jealousy for the totality of your heart and mind and mouth and hands. Maybe even more jealous than Sinai because we know Christ. And now comes commandment number three, my assignment, let me pray. Father, as we attempt to unfold what it means not to take your name in vain, be our helper. I have said it's a miracle that anybody believes what is here in the Ten Commandments and all over the Bible, but you have wrought that miracle in hundreds in this room. Praise your name. I I hope, I pray that they know they are a walking miracle. If there's any resonance With these first three commandments. And so I ask for that miracle to be wrought in me and through me now in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Let's start with the second half. It's a warning. It's not a commandment. It's a warning. It's a, an argument. If you take the name of the Lord your God in vain, He will not hold you guiltless. In other words, guilt and punishment will rest upon your head if you take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, What does that mean? That doesn't mean there is no way then for a person to repent of taking the name of the Lord in vain and find forgiveness for having taken the name of the Lord in vain. It doesn't mean that. We know it doesn't mean that because these very words echo again in chapter 34 like this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Now, how do you make sense out of that? There is abundant, overflowing love and mercy and the forgiveness of every kind of sin of taking the name's Lord in vain, the Lord's name in vain. But he won't. He won't clear the guilty. So, here's my inference from that clash. He means... He won't hold you guiltless unless you repent of taking the Lord's name in vain and embrace His provision for the covering of your sins through a substitute and a sacrifice, animals then, Christ now. So if you are guilty of taking the Lord's name in vain, there is a way forward. The call of commandment number three is turn away from taking the name of the Lord in vain, which everybody in this room did this week. Turn away from taking the name of the Lord in vain. Repent, receive forgiveness, and then by the power of the Holy Spirit, be done with it. Don't take the Lord's name in vain anymore. Go, sin no more, forgiven saints. So, let's press into the meaning. We have to know what name means, we have to know what in vain means, we need to know what take means in order to be sure that we can fight against this. Let's start with name. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What does that mean? My guess is we would all rivet our attention on the immediate context and say, well, surely Foremost in his mind is his proper name right here in the text of L-O-R-D, all caps, Yahweh, which is built on the word I am, right? I am who I am. That's my name, Exodus 3:14. No beginning, no ending, no becoming, no dependence. I am Yahweh. I am, I am. Who I am. Absolute. 6,000 times plus in the Old Testament, God is called Yahweh, I am. And I I say it's foremost because right there, look at verse 2, I am Yahweh, your God. That's my name. Or verse 5, I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. Or verse 7, you shall not take the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. So, the first and most obvious meaning of name is Yahweh, that's my name. Like John, Joe, David, Yahweh is His personal name. Don't take that name in vain. But since we know that Yahweh gave himself the name Yahweh with meaning, not a label to distinguish him from other gods merely has meaning, since we know that in God's mind and throughout the Scripture names carry meaning about reality of the person. We are inclined, therefore, to trace out, well, does name of God only refer to Yahweh? Since Yahweh is a name that has meaning, are there others? Here's a clue. In verse 5 it says, I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. So that's the way I am. That's who I am. That's part of my nature. Jealousy for your heart. And mind, and words, and hands. I'm jealous. That's who I am. So, when you get over to chapter 34, verse 14, it goes like this You shall worship no other God, for Yahweh, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. So, the reality of God as jealous has become the name of God because names are reality when it comes to God listen here are some more examples Isaiah 57 thus says the one who inhabits eternity whose name is holy Isaiah 9 to us a child is born to us a son is given his name Will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The reality is his name. His name is His reality. Matthew 1. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The reality who he is and what he does is his name, Yeshua, Savior. Revelation 19, the name by which he is called is the Word of God. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's pretty clear, I think, that biblically, the name of God is an expression, any expression, of his reality. What well, is he? Who is he? So, don't take the name of the Lord your God in in vain means don't take God or anything that his name expresses about his reality in vain. Don't take God or anything that a name expresses about his reality, don't take that in vain. He is, I am, jealous, holy, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, Jesus, word of God, king of kings, lord of lords, alpha and omega, and on, and on. Don't take any of it in vain. It's his name. What does it mean to take in vain? To take something of the revelation of the reality of God into our minds and to have thoughts about it in vain. To take some revelation of the way of God into our heart and have feelings about it, in vain. To take some expression of the reality of God on our lips and speak the name, in vain. To take God into our resolves and do something in his name, in vain. What does that mean? That's what take means. Take it into your mind. Take it into your heart. Take it into your words, your mouth. Take it into your hands. And then think thoughts about him and feel feelings about him and say words with him and do things in his name, all of it, in vain. What does that mean, in vain? It's not hard to answer that question. That little phrase, in vain, is used often enough that we're not left in the dark in the Old Testament or the New. You will be able to answer the question if I just read you five passages. I mean, five short sentences. Here they go. Jeremiah 2, in vain have I struck your children, but they took no correction. Jeremiah 4, in vain you beautify yourself, but your lovers despise you. Jeremiah 6, in vain the refining fire goes on, but the wicked are not removed. Jeremiah 46, in vain you have used many medicines and there is no healing. Malachi 3.14, you have said, it is in vain to serve God. What's the profit of our keeping his charge? So, in vain means spank the children, futile, empty, no correction happens. Put on makeup, futile, empty, no lover's. Put the wicked through a refiner's fire, futile, empty, pointless, no repentance. Take the medicines, futile, empty, pointless, no healing. Serve God, futile, empty, no profit, in vain, no success, wasted. So, the question becomes, how do you take the name of God into your thoughts, into your feelings, into your mouth, and into your hands in such a way that your thoughts and your feelings and your actions and your words are pointless, futile, empty, wasted, Wasted thoughts, wasted feelings, wasted words, wasted deeds. How do you do that? There's so many ways we could go, go about answering that question. <laughs> so many applications. But I found the most riveting, penetrating, summary answer to that question in the words of Jesus in Matthew 15, 8 and 9. Listen. So, I'm asking the question how, how do we do this? How do we take an expression of God's reality into our mind? How do we take an expression of God's reality into our hearts? How do we take an expression of God's reality into our mouths? And how do we take an expression of God's reality into our hands or our feet? And all of our thoughts, all of our feelings, all of our words, and all of our actions, when we do that, are in vain. How do we do that? Here's Jesus' answer. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men." Now that statement is about worship. I know that. But it applies to all of life because for the Christian all of life is worship. Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God, not in vain. For God's glory, eating, drinking, and everything else, all of life is worship for the Christian. It's not a waste. It's not pointless, it's not empty, it's not futile, it's for God's glory. Or, that was uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, here's Colossians three seventeen. whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything, word or deed, everything done, In the name. All of life is worship, therefore Jesus' words apply to every moment of your life. And they explain how you go about thinking, feeling, speaking, and doing the name of God in vain. He says two things. We turn our daily worship into emptiness and futility and vanity when we empty our hearts of affection for God, when they are emptied. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So love, admiration, reverence, cherishing, treasuring, you name all the things here that belong to him, all of them belong to Him, and therefore whatever you do with a heart that has been emptied of love, admiration, reverence, cherishing, and treasuring, you do in vain. You think in vain, you feel in vain, you speak in vain, and you act in vain because your heart is far from God. He does not have your affections. The playoffs have your affections, your wife has your affections, your children have your affections, your food has your affections, your leisure has your affections, your success has your affections, your job has your affections. And God is way down on the list instead of like commandment one says, before everything in your affections. So that's, that's number one that Jesus says, their heart is far from me, so their worship is nothing. They have replaced, in a room like this, a building like this, It'd be quite easy to do it here, in fact, this is beautiful, I love it. However, it would be very easy to replace affections for God with religious ritual in this room. Got a liturgy, you got stained glass windows, got arches, you got friends, and sli- slippery, slippery, slippery affections for God—radical, deep, strong, unshakable—all satisfying affections for the living God just fade into aesthetic enjoyment of place and people. That'd be pretty easy here. So that's the first the first way. Here's the second way. He says, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So just as the heart is emptied of its affection for God, your heart is far from me. Now the second way we turn our daily worship into vanity and emptiness is that our words and statements are emptied of divine truth are replaced with human opinions they teach as doctrines the doctrines of men statements words they're all right God is God, Christ is Christ, Jesus is Jesus. Good words. They don't have any content, any biblical content, any divine content anymore. They're just empty. So those two ways, Jesus says, turn the name into vanity, emptiness heart is far from me. Empty the heart of affection, true affection, and over here empty your words of truth. So to take the name of God in vain is to take up some expression of God's reality into our thoughts, into our emotions, into our words, and into our actions, when in fact The truth of God has gone out of them, and the affections for God have vanished. Now, if you thought I was going to address cuss words like, God damn you, or Jesus Christ, Or, oh my God, I didn't comb my hair. <laughs> OMG, OMG. If you thought I was going to address that, I have. For you who have ears to hear, I pray. The elimination of that kind of language is the kindergarten in the school of Christ. If you're still doing kindergarten behaviors, here's the remedy. Fill your words with the weight of God's truth and fill your hearts with affection for his name. And then spend the rest of your life doing serious, important things with His name. Now back, we're close by going back and watching the flow of thought one more time. Back to the front of the Ten Commandments. Recall, countercultural, counterintuitive, offensive, and shocking language nothing above me, commandment one, nothing above me in your thoughts, in your affections, in your words, in your actions. Second, no carved substitutes that steal away your thoughts, your actions, your words, your actions, your, your affections. Third, I am jealous. I think that's grounding both of the first two commandments. I am jealous for all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your words, all of your actions. I am a jealous God. So, conclusion, commandment three, don't treat me as though I'm inconsequential. Don't treat me as though I'm empty, Don't use thoughts or feelings or words or actions in my name that accomplish nothing to give me glory. Don't empty your life, your mind, your heart, your mouth, your deeds. Don't empty them of significance. He's not pointless. He's not trivial. He's not inconsequential. He's not insignificant. Don't let your hearts be empty of your affections for Him, and don't let your words be empty of the weight of divine truth. What Oprah Winfrey failed to see so far when she took offense at the jealousy of God was that God's jealousy for His name Jealousy to be supreme in her and your affections is our salvation, our joy. Let me say it again. What she failed to see and what she took offense at but failed to see was that the jealousy of God for your whole affections, your whole mind, your whole mouth, your whole hands and what they can do is not offensive if you understand. It It is our life. His jealousy is our salvation. His jealousy for his name is our life. And I'll close by reading just several sentences from the Bible that show you that's true. Psalm 25 For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. (laughs) Do you see that? Because you are so jealous for your name, pardon my guilt. Psalm 79. Deliver us and atone for our sin for your name's sake. Psalm 106, he saved them for his name's sake. Oprah, wake up. You have a great calling, Cities Church. Such a gift from God. You, this, the location, the affirmation of faith, the devotion and depth of your leadership, you have a great calling. Frankly, I hope Jesus comes back so you can't fulfill it. But in case he doesn't, not just the next five decades, David, but maybe... 500 years. I hope not. I want him back. You have a great calling. It is countercultural, counterintuitive, offensive, and shocking, such that only a miracle could cause you to love what I have said. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and those who run into it are safe. Don't treat this tower like a collapsing shack in your thoughts or emotions or words or actions. It's not. It's your life. Let's pray. What more fitting plea could I express right now, Lord, before we sing and take the Lord's communion? What more fitting prayer could I pray than, hallowed be your name. This is what you taught us to ask God to do, to reverence his name, honor his name, glorify his name. And so that's my closing prayer for this church. May your name be hallowed in this place, faithfully, biblically, and not in vain till Jesus comes. Amen.